John chapter 13. I want to look at this moment in the Gospels where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. Now, the problem when we look at this passage is that many of us have heard it before. In fact, I think there's a kind of danger of over-familiarity to this story. There's a real danger of misunderstanding the point of this story. And I feel like when you've, when you've heard something many times before, you just kind of, it just washes over you. But the really fascinating thing about this passage is the detail to which John goes through this story. It's almost like uh, a play where he just talks us through at moment by moment every detail of, of almost or significant detail of what happens. And so as, as I read it to you, I want you just to kind of imagine yourself there. This is the upper room, the night before Jesus is crucified. Jesus is with his own. He's with his dearest, his disciples. And before he has much to teach them, which is basically John chapter 13 to 16, but before he does that, he has a, it's a moment of cleansing. And this is, this is what I want to read to you now. John chapter 13, 1 to 17. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when, Gen- when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So why do we need to look at this moment again? Well, I'll give you a few reasons why I think this is really passage is misunderstood very regularly. The first is that we miss something of the shocking beauty of this moment. 
We, you know, we, we don't, most of our feet, let's be honest, they're pretty clean. We wear socks and shoes. When we think of someone washing our feet, we think of spa treatments or a health club, something like that. Not, this is very different. This, this, for, for these guys in an agrarian society, walking around with sandals, which were full of kind of mud and dirt and whatever else was on the, on the roads at the time, this task of washing the disciples' feet is much more like cleaning your toilet or, you know, getting stuck in into the drains of your, around your house or, or something like that. There's, there's something really dirty about this moment. And in that dirt, in that debased act, so to speak, we are confronted in that moment by the beautiful humility of Christ. I want us to re-enter into this moment and see the beauty of the servant king, the king who is willing to wash our feet as we enter into this passage. That's the first reason we need to look at this. The second reason is we miss something of the significance of this moment. If you're familiar with this story and you kind of, you know, you think, oh, it's kind of like a, a loving act. You know, the night before, he goes to his crucifixion, he shows love for his, his brothers, his friends, his, his, his disciples, and he washes their feet. And there is love here. There's no doubt about it. But it's much more than that. We miss the symbolic significance of this moment, that this moment is about cleansing. It's a, a reenactment, a symbolic moment that points both to the cross to come the next day and ultimately Christ's overarching purpose, the gospel, to cleanse humanity of their sin. It's a wonderful, liberating truth that we will never grow old of and we need to come and hear again this morning. And then finally, and I suspect this is actually the biggest danger with this passage, is we miss something of the scale of the call that Christ is giving us in this story. You can't read the first half and not look at the second. See, at the end of the story, or verse 14, 15, he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. There is a call here to become servants like Christ. And the problem is that when the church has, has understood this historically throughout the ages, often the, this, that command is taken as a command to kind of uh, tokenistic act of wash it, uh, Christian leaders washing uh, their church or others' feet. It's a Monday, Thursday, the day before Easter in some uh, churches. It's the day when, I think... Uh, the hierarchy of the church often uh, use it as an opportunity to wash uh, folks' feet. And I think to, to hear it as an instruction to wash each other's feet is really actually to miss the point. Overall, after all, because it's, Christ is not calling us to a kind of performative or tokenistic act of service as a way that might draw attention to ourselves. Think about what it means to be a slave in that culture. Think about who would be doing this work. It's hidden work. It's actually, it's a call for every Christian, not just Christian leaders, every Christian to become servants like Christ. To become servants like Christ. To carry the beauty that we see in this moment into the world, both in our church and beyond. And so this morning, I really want to do three things with you. I want to re-enter into this familiar story and help us to see our beautiful servant king, I want you to hear the example, the call to follow Christ in this, to become servants like our servant king, to carry the beauty that we see in this moment into the world. 
And then finally, I want, I want you to see this isn't moralism. There's so much of a danger. When we talk about the idea of service, it, it sounds tokenistic, and we'll come on to that, but it also sounds moralistic. It's like they're just going to whip you into a little bit more, like trying to squeeze some good deeds in your life. And when the church speaks like that, it doesn't help. What you've got to see, actually, is that Christ's whole mission is about reordering our hearts. As we understand Christ's love, as we receive this cleansing love into our lives, our hearts are reordered. So they're actually the call to be a servant, a call to lay down your life in the service of the interests of others, is not a kind of only a duty, but it actually becomes a joy, that we become willing and joyful servants. I want to show you how Christ reorders our hearts. I want you to see the beauty of Christ. I want you to hear the call, and I want to show you how Christ reorders our hearts. First of all, then, see the beauty of Christ. See the beautiful humility of this moment. See it as a picture of Christ's overarching mission to enter into the mess of our lives and the stunning promise of being washed clean by Christ. Why do we need to do this? Well, it's because our discipleship relies on being captured by the glory and beauty of Christ. It's so easy for the Christian life to quickly become drudgery, to become a set of actions that, well, I'm a Christian, so I ought to do this, and I ought to do that, and whether it's go to church or do this thing or share my faith, it's all a series of oughts, and there is a call to surrender, to we are servants. Christ describes us as that in this passage. But the real, the real way to do the Christian life is to be in marvel at the person of Christ, to be captured by his glory and his beauty, to get such a regular and profound vision of the person of Christ, to say, I can, I can but bow. I can but bow. I can but surrender my life to you when I see your beauty, your moral glory, I say, I, all I can do is surrender my life to follow you when I see who you are. The Christian life is only possible when you are gripped by the glory of Christ. I want to stoke your affections for Christ as we consider this moment. And you have to see the shockiness. Let's unpack something of this story for a moment. I mean, surely, even just on the bare face of it, for us, this is a deeply unappealing act. You think about feet. They're like some of the least attractive part of the human body. If I say the word toe jam, does that capture anything? I mean, it's a really horrible word. It just, in it of itself, it's a picture. Some of you have put off your lunch already. Um, <laughs> the calloused feet, calloused soles. It's, you know, feet are just deeply unattractive. And in an agrarian society, in the, in the culture they were in, as the, the, the smells, uh, uh, the, the dirt, the mud, whatever else that gets on their feet, washing these feet is, in anybody, anybody's standard, a deeply unattractive prospect. But, but you have to see how the disciples are shocked in this moment. One writer suggests the fact that actually John doesn't, say, doesn't give us the voice of the disciples actually suggests that perhaps they are almost silently kind of stunned or awkward in this moment as Jesus washes their feet. But of course, they're not all silent. We can rely on Peter to speak up. And he is offended, isn't he? He's deeply offended. 
says, you shall ne- verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. He's outraged at the prospect. Why? Because this is just so wrong in his mind, in his culture, the superior serving the inferior. There's no record of this idea of a, of a, in Jewish or Greek literature of a superior washing the feet of their inferior. Actually, you could go to someone's house and likely you could probably just wash your own feet. In Luke 7, Jesus speaking to Simon, the far, uh, the, says, you didn't give me water to wash my feet. He kind of expected to have to do it himself. And if you had a slave, it wouldn't be a Jewish slave. Such were the Jewish laws at the time that you wouldn't, uh, the expectation was, well, it was too low, too low a task to give to a Jewish slave. No, only just give this one to the Gentiles. They are shocked. That's just because he's their teacher, let alone that he is Lord. See something of the cosmic paradox of this moment. Think back to those verses I read at the beginning of the service. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is gripped struck by the glory that he sees before him as he sees perhaps a theophany a moment of christ's presence in this life before the incarnation and he is stunned as the seraphim shout holy 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 is the lord god almighty or indeed go fast forward to revelation chapter one after this moment, after Christ's incarnation, and, and you saw, you heard the vision of Christ that John has. As he sees him as the one whose light shines out into the world. As the one whose voice thunders like many waters. See the glory of Christ, the risen king who reigns over the whole creation. Who created the cosmos by the words of his mouth. And now he's cleaning out the mud from between Judas's toes. The one who spoke creation into being is cleaning out the mud from between Judas's toes. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that stunning? That the living God would step into our world, would enter into the mess of creation. And we get into the very dirtiest part of a human being. Actually, this is something of a symbolic retelling, I think, of the incarnation. This is how Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 2. This is what I'm saying is this moment, it captures something of the bigger Christian narrative, the Christian story. He says, have this mind amongst yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, although, for though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. By the way, in this moment, Jesus looks like a servant. He takes off his outer garment. He puts on the towel round his waist. If you came in that moment, you'd say, well, that's just a servant, isn't it? Just a guy just washing, washing his feet. Even the, the, the Lord of all looks He's playing a part, so to speak. He's put on the clothing of a servant. And that is the Christian story. The living God puts on the clothing of a servant, puts on flesh. And it goes on. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This humiliation journey, this willingness to step into the mess, ends by Christ dying a slave's death. This is a picture of the Christian story that God stepped into the mess of our world and humiliated himself on our behalf. Why? Well, at the very basic level, 
This is about love. This, this is the story. He says this in right at the beginning of the, of the passage. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is, this is about love. This is, the, this, is, this is behind the great incarnation story. The fact that God steps into our world is because he loves us. Like a parent who watches their child uh, in great distress, in mortal danger, in kind of mud or sewage or whatever. Picture it for a moment. If you have a child, picture that. Uh, and what happens is the, he steps into our world. He gets all that mess on himself and he embraces his child. He says, come back to me. And he doesn't just embrace them. He says, I want to cleanse you. I want to cleanse you from all the dirt that you have put on yourself. What you've got to hear, brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, there is no dirt or filth or mess in your life that will cause Christ to recoil from you. I know so often Christians trapped in a mire of sin in their lives, the first thing they want to do is withdraw from community. You think, I can't be around other people with what's going on in my life. We've seen it time and again, pastorally. Sometimes you want to withdraw from Christ. I can't come to church, not after what I've done. And this says, no, the mess in your life, Christ sees it all, and he moves towards you in love. And we saw it, we see it in this story, and we see it in the cross, that the living God comes towards you in your mess. You haven't gone too far yet. You haven't gone too far. Come back to Christ. Come and let him deal with the mess in your life. That is the invitation that Christ would give you. But there's more. To understand this as just love is, is in a sense, actually to miss the point. This is about cleansing. See, in verse 7, Jesus speaks to Peter and says, you don't understand yet. He says, Jesus answered him, he's protested, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. After tomorrow, you will understand. After the cross, you will understand. Because he's saying, look, this is, this is just as it's a reenactment moment of the incarnation, it's also a reenactment moment of the crucifixion. It's a, it's a symbolic moment that says Christ has come to cleanse us. This is the Christian story. We come in filthy rags. We come defiled by the detritus of sin and mess in our lives. And we come to the cross and we exchange those filthy rags for robes of righteousness. And we stand marveling, saying we didn't deserve any of this. Don't you see how messy I was? And you have clothed me. Some of you are Christians and you're walking under great condemnation. And you need to hear the words of Jesus to, to the disciples here when he says, You are clean. You are clean. There is a, a mo this is really speaking of what we call justification the idea that because of Christ's death on the cross, he sees you as sinless, sees you as perfect. He's washed it all off, brothers and sisters. You are clean. You are clean. Let that sink in for a moment. But it's more than that, if you put your faith in Christ, by the way. Caveat. But there's also another, another piece to this, isn't there? He invites Peter to come and wash his feet. Even there, in fact, he says, if you, if you don't wash my feet, you'll have no, if, I, if you don't let me wash your feet, you will have no part with me. And what it speaks of, I think, is this perpetual invitation from Christ 
to come and allow him to wash your feet again. Just as you were made clean once and for all with Christ's death on the cross, so there is always an invitation to come and confess your sin and receive his forgiveness. That is, he's kind of inviting you, saying, have you messed up? Are you got all messy with the world again? Have you been walking in sin again? Come back to me and let me wash your feet. That is the invitation that Christ makes in this story. By the way, there's another group of people this speaks to. And that is, if you're not a Christian here, you must hear the greatest risk, uh, maybe and you might even think yourself a Christian, so you might want to listen in anyway, if you're a Christian. The greatest risk in this story is a denial about the dirt in your life. See, this picture of dirt, it speaks of the way that as we live with no reference to God, or we live and walk in sin, that actually that, in a sense, pollutes us, it defiles us. It's why people feel dirty after a one-night stand. It's why, they, why sometimes the, the memories of things you've done eat you up years later. It's a window into the world for those who say, I don't really believe in sin. Why do you feel guilty then? And actually the greatest risk here, you must hear in this story, in this moment, is him saying, if you don't come to me, if you don't recognize you're dirty, if you won't come to me, you will have no share with me. The way into the Christian life is a recognition that you need this cleansing. Because if you don't come, if you don't hear Christ's invitation for cleansing, then you have no inheritance with him. You have no share with him. And the cleansing is a, is a divine issue. It's a, it's a reconciliation issue. You're not. You remain away and separate from Christ. Hear the invitation and hear the warning. And as we reflect on this story, we just have to drink in the love that is in this moment. Jonathan Edwards the theologian said, there is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. Love which drives Christ to embrace, in, uh, dive into the mess of the world. A steadfast love. He says, he loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And of course we know that after the resurrection, he continues to love them. Those words are true for you. Christ will not stop loving you. What I'm trying to say is Christ is more committed to you than you are to him. Our, our hearts are fickle. We know that we are not steadfast in our affection and commitment to Christ. And yet he says, I will love you to the end. That is the promise that Christ makes to those who put their faith in him. He says, Christ sees the mess that we've got ourselves into and enters into our world, both to demonstrate his love and to clean us up and restore us. So we see the beauty of this moment, but you must see also the call that Christ makes for us to display, to inhabit, to become, in a way, beautiful servants who point to the beautiful servant king. Christ is setting us an example that we are to become servants like him, serving the interests of others with hearts transformed by love, both in the church and beyond. Christ in verse 14, 15 in this passage, he's saying, I've given you an example. I've given you a model to follow. I am your pattern. It's not tokenistic acts of washing each other's feet once a year or, or kind of performative acts of service in some way to kind of get the approval of the world. No, it's to become a servant like Christ. To become one who lays aside your own interests 
and even your dignity to serve the interests of others, both in the church and outside the church. To live a life that displays this great story of mercy and love, and in doing so, pointing to the one who has infinite and abounding mercy and love for those who come to him. First of all, this dignified service. Some of you, your lives are full of service. Think about maybe you're serving family, or uh, you know that you've got relationships where you're serving them, and sometimes that just feels exhausting. And sometimes you think, I just want to give up. This service is too much. And what you need to see in this moment is that Christ dignifies that. As you serve, as you serve with the right heart, as you serve with love, you are pointing, you are living out the posture of the great servant king. This is profoundly dignifying to to serving others. So if your life is full of service, hear that, say, look, as you do that, you are imaging the great servant king. But see that this is really a call, first of all, to the church. See, the instruction is to serve one another. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. You, uh, In verse 14, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Remember, this is a community formation moment. Jesus, the first 12 chapters of John's gospel is all about Jesus' interaction with the world. You've got him interacting with the Jewish teachers. You've got him performing different miracles. He's in the world. But then from chapter 13 to 17, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. And it's these foundational instructions that he's giving them and saying, "This this is your life together. This is a community formation moment. And how is he forming them? He's saying your life together is to be marked by service and love. And that your love will be demonstrated by your service for each other. Saturated. Well, imagine a people saturated, living out this kind of service, born out of love for each other. Let me give you a few examples. Last year, when uh, our little girl was born, she was born five weeks premature, and she wasn't growing very well in the womb. It was all quite stressful. And, um, And she was born like... Consultants like she's coming out today, and uh, and in that week actually we knew she wasn't growing well, so there was there was like um, a couple of weeks where it was quite a bit nerve wracking, um, but all through that time we were loved in the most profound way by the church family. I mean to be honest, the whole thing the the love that we received was encapsulated by the fact that during a quite difficult labour there was literally a prayer meeting going on uh, that a b- bunch of people just was like we're going to get together and we're going to pray. Some of them were fasting. I didn't even know some of these people that well. And they were like, no, we're going to fast for your baby and we're going to pray for them and we're going to hold a prayer meeting. And by the way, during that prayer meeting, like at 10 o'clock, as the prayer meeting is going on, uh, the one, we like engage into proper labor and everything goes well and the midwife's like, whatever they're doing, keep them doing it. Um, my, I, we, were, we were blown away, honestly, by the goodness of God, but we were also absolutely blown away by the love that we experienced in that moment. That kind of love that honestly will stay with me for the rest of my life. As people are like, some of these people I didn't even know that well were willing to say, no, we are going to fast and pray for your child because we love you. Isn't that incredible? Or I think about someone who I knew who was moved into a new flat and they were basically skint. And I, I kind of, they were like, we need to kit out a flat. And I was kind of, okay, how should we do, what should we do? Should we maybe get some other people together? And, uh, and while I was kind of thinking about this, uh, like how we could help this person, someone else has stepped in and said, right, I know you've just moved into the flat. I'm going to spend, a few, I'm going to give you a few hundred pounds or whatever. I'm going to buy a whole series of white goods for your kitchen. That kind of thing, a couple, at least a couple. I'm not entirely sure how many. But my point is, okay, I'm not saying come to church and we'll buy you white goods. But, <laughs> but I'm saying in, in a moment, without thinking, I imagine this person who, brought, who gave that gift didn't even think twice about it. She's like, I just want to give you a gift. 
I know you're not. I know you. I know you're in financial need. I know you've just moved into a flat. Let me help you out. What it is is it means that they are family. They're not biological family, but they're living out the reality that we are spiritual family together. Because they love one another, because they have a sense of shared solidarity, they serve one another. This service is a vindication of the love that they have for each other. You see that even at the end of this chapter, Jesus instructs the disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What I think is interesting about the placement of that verse, I always wonder, what's it doing there? Actually, if you think about what's just happened, what he's just done for them, he's almost saying, your love will be shown by your service. Your service for each other will vindicate and prove that you really love one another. Service and love, they go together inextricably. I think one more example, I just see a number of people struggling with mental health in all sorts of different ways. I think about a, f- a friend who was experiencing depression. Another friend said, I'm just going to get alongside you. We're just going to pray together regularly. I'm just going to pray for you and support you through that. Of course, there may be, they may get extra mental health support. They may get spiritual counsel. But they actually, what they needed in that moment was just love. Or I think about a friend who was struggling and someone, another friend who said, come and stay with me for a few days. I know your head's all over the place. I want you to come and, come and stay at my house for a few days. It's those pictures that actually prove that we have received a love that is not of this world. And that will be manifest in our community together. By the way, can you see that this call to serve, it it requires a self-denial that runs at exactly odds with the narrative of our culture. Our culture says, fulfill yourself. In fact, it makes a kind of virtue of what we might call self-care. A virtue of looking after yourself. It says, no, really, to be a good person, or the good life involves you really caring for yourself. And this says, no, it's quite the opposite. Actually, real freedom comes, and I want to show you, actually, as you experience Christ's love, you are liberated to care for and love others in actually an entirely rewarding and joyful way. That question our culture asks, is that really making you happy? Well, sometimes service won't make you happy. Sometimes it will be painful, inconvenient, and annoying. And you're still called to do it. Because you're a servant who serves the master, who is a servant who laid down his life. The cross was a painful act. It had cost, great cost. So too, sometimes our service will have cost. What is this service about, really? It's about laying aside self-interest. Think about that, instru- that description that uh, we read in Philippians 2 of Jesus being willing to lay down his life. It said, it, before that, verse 4, the instruction that comes before the example says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Where are the needs around you? Do you know folk who are struggling with loneliness? Do you know folk who are in pain, struggling with mental health? Maybe just struggling, not experiencing genuine community. It says, actually, when you see those needs, you move towards those needs. That is what I think it means, really, to serve one another in love, to move towards the needs in your life. And if you live in genuine community and you open up your life to this family and you spend time with us week in, week out, and you will start to see those needs very quickly and people will see those needs in your life. You look for it and you'll see it. But really, I really want you to hear as we, as we hear this call that this is not about squeezing out duty. If you see a lack of service in your life, you have to ask the question, do I really love the people who I'm called to serve? It starts with love. See that in this moment. Loving his own to the end. Christ does this out of love. We hear the call to serve and we think, I just need to squeeze in a couple of good deeds into my life. 
No, it's much more than that. It's about a call to allow the Christ, the love of Christ to transform your heart and to fundamentally reshape your orientation to others. To fundamentally reshape your orientation towards others. And that requires a change of heart. It requires love. If you do service without love, it's absolutely meaningless. See what it says in, in um, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul describes it, it says, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. He's saying if you just kind of do this martyrdom service, that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying allowing yourself to be transformed by the love of Christ, allowing yourself to be filled by the love of Christ, and then allowing that love to reshape your very orientation and purpose in life, to share that love with all around you, and even those beyond the community. This is not tokenistic. This isn't just about a little deed here and there. This is about reorientating your posture. I think about Paul describing it in Philippians chapter 2. He said, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Saying, I'm basically, I'm pouring out my life for you and for your faith. And you see that in Paul's life all the way, sacrificing himself for the sake of the community that he's serving. It, actually, what this is about is reshaping your ambition in life. What do you aspire towards? What is the ambition of your life? Jesus says, if you aspire towards a great life, it isn't about accumulation of wealth. It isn't about achieving some great status. Actually, greatness is about a willingness to serve. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is speaking to James and John who are uh, jostling for position in the kingdom. And he speaks about those in leadership. He says, but it shall not be among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever must be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For whoever must be great among you must be your servant. It's a call to be a slave of all. This isn't just a little act, tokenistic act. This is about fundamentally reorientating your life. Saying, how can I make my life about serving others? How can I pour myself out for the sake, first of my church family and actually beyond that, for my neighbors and, and others? A great life consists of a willingness to pour yourself out for the people of God and for the people outside, beyond but it's not just the church. You see in this story, even here, this is a picture not just of love for the church. Think about Jesus' willingness to serve Judas. He says, not all of you are clean. This is a moment where Jesus is embodying the great enemy love, of his own enemy love. Jesus calls us in uh, Matthew chapter 5 to love our enemies and here we have, in this moment, Jesus literally showing us what it looks like to love your enemies as he washes the feet of the man who is about to betray him. It says the love of Christ is never an introverted love just for the community. The love that Christ has poured into our hearts propels us outwards and calls us to love even our enemies. In fact, he says, in a way, if your love is just for the people like you, it achieves nothing. Saying, actually, love, the real love is about loving your enemies. 
So you heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We cannot just hear this is a call just to serve one another. It says, no, if you, love, if you have Christ's love in your heart, that love will overflow into all sorts of other relationships. People in your workplace, the people around you. And in those moments, in those relationships, you have an opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ in the way that you serve those people. It actually means also just taking opportunities to serve our community, to, that they might taste the love of Christ through us. I think about, we're, I mentioned in our email on, fr- on Friday, we're starting a community evangelistic meal for a rough sleeping and homeless community around Waterloo. We're doing it in partnership with an organization called Weber Street, a community day center, part of London City Mission. And it's not a tokenistic act of kind of performative spirituality. It's actually our way of embodying the love of Christ with, those, with that part of the community. Our way of finding a way, finding an opportunity to to share and speak and love and, and, and to show these people love and to speak of the love of Christ will proclaim the gospel each time we have, have food together. Perhaps maybe some of our reticence in this is because we've forgotten the beauty of this moment. We've forgotten the beauty of what it means to serve and to lay down our life like this. I think about Isaiah 58. It says, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. As you serve those in need around you, as you lay down your life, not just for the church, but also for those outside, you will display the light of Christ in your life and to those around you. So the question is, do we want to be beautiful like Christ? Do we see the beauty in this moment and do we want to embody this beauty in our relationships and in our lives. And finally, we have to ask, how does Christ change us? I said this isn't moral moralism. This isn't cold and duty-driven. Christ changes us from the heart to become people who are filled with the love of Christ and willing to lay aside our dignity to serve the people around us. How? Well, first we serve out of sonship. You see, in this, in this passage, it's, it's almost you miss it in a moment when it describes, before Jesus does this, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments. He's almost saying, Jesus, knowing who he is, knowing where he's come from and knowing where he's going, he's able to lay aside his dignity. What I think this speaks of is the fact that when you know who you are, when you have a a gospel dignity that says, I am a son of the Father, and by the way, if you're a man or a woman, you're a son of the Father, that son means a sense of honor and dignity. To be the firstborn son in the family is a place of honor and dignity. And because of Christ's death on the cross, you receive that status of sonship. When you know that, when you know whose you are, when you know where you're headed, that you are going to be with the Father for eternity, when you know the privilege of sonship, actually, we're able to give away your life now. You're willing to lay down your privileges 
You're willing to lay down your status and your self-interest because you worship the Father who knows everything you need and will give you what you need. And so I'm willing to give myself away. So we start from, from that deep place of privilege, of knowing that we are loved by the Father, that conviction that I will spend eternity with him. I do not need the status that the world gives because I know that I'm a son of the Father. And that's a re- actually, when, that, when we know that, it's a massive relief. It's actually a liberty to want to serve others in that moment. I think I'm no longer trying to go around life, trying to make a name for myself and prove myself to the world because I already have this status of sonship and that releases me to lay down everything I have, to lay down my status and my privileges to serve the people around me. I'm free to look stupid and foolish for the sake of love. I'm free to pursue service rather than worldly greatness. What I'm saying is you need to know that your feet have been washed in order to do the washing. If you're feeling resentful about service, sometimes people do. They sometimes say, you guys talk about service all the time. Join our, join our life, uh, you know, join a serving team, whatever. If you feel resentful about service, you actually have to go back to Christ. Say, have I recognized the privilege of what it is that Christ is willing to come down and wash our feet to serve us, to lay down his life for us? Do you know the status of sonship? Do you deeply feel this love, this love that frees us to spend ourselves for the world? One writer, Adam Ramsey, said, your ability to extend grace and serve others around you is directly proportional to your awareness of how greatly Jesus has shown grace to you and served you and how he continues to do so. Your ability to extend grace and serve others is directly proportional to how much you understand and appreciate that Christ was willing to serve you. And so we can forget ourselves. Our world kind of cultivates almost a self-obsession. You see it on the tube as everyone is looking at themselves in the mirror or seeing themselves on screens in countless different ways. Actually, the Christian is freed from self-obsession because they have that justification from the Father. They can live with what's called self-forgetfulness. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. He says, I don't really care what you think about me. Do you know how liberating that feels when you don't care what people think about you? And actually, I don't even care what I think about me. Instead, I know that I'm innocent because the Father has cleansed me with the sacrificial death of his Son. And so I can live with a freedom of self-forgetfulness. Say, I'm not going to live walking around judging myself. I'm not going to walk around with the judgment of others controlling me. I am free. What a liberty that is. A free, and what will I do with my freedom? I will freedom to lay down my life and live a life of love and service of others. Our society says, feed the self. Christ frees us from the self, the tyrannical ego that demands approval or recognition from others. Instead, we are free by the love of Christ. And so we we need to saturate ourselves in this love. I can't persuade you to love other people more. I can't say, love people! That doesn't work. (laughs) The only way I know how is to preach to you about the abundant love of Christ. The only way I know how is to say, Christ was willing to wash your feet, to get in the dirt of your life. He was willing to die a slave's death to cleanse you, 
that that love continues, that he is steadfastly committed to you. And that love is so good, I think I cannot possibly keep that love to myself. I want to tell people about that love, and I want to live a life that speaks to that love. I want to demonstrate that love with a willingness to serve my family, my church family, and beyond. So brothers and sisters, let's step back. Let's step back and just look at Christ again. Look at the great foot-washing king. The great king who became a servant. Hear his invitation to receive his cleansing love. Hear his invitation to come to me and wash, be washed. Wash your sin away. And hear his call to take up your cross, to become like him, to become a slave of all, to choose to spend your life for the sake of others, to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, to become a community marked and shaped by this beautiful love, to be willing to serve one another in love, and also to let it go beyond, to find opportunities to live a life that demonstrates the love of the great servant king in every part of our lives. That is the call that Christ would give us.